We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with highly regarded coach and coach educator, Jack Trainer. As always, we pride ourselves on having a wide variety of guests from different fields to sprinkle their wisdom and knowledge to help you become even better at what it is you do. With the appointment of Graham Potter at Chelsea after his rapid rise as a coach, one thing that may be overlooked is that he has degrees in social sciences, leadership and emotional intelligence. None of them are sport related, all of them are people related. With that being said, having a wide variety of knowledge and experiences is important, as is the ability to manage people. Our guest today is highly qualified in managing and communicating. So here is a snippet of what to expect today. A lot of the time people aren't comfortable with confrontation, so we avoid it and we avoid it by either telling a white lie or we avoid dealing with, this, with, with whatever the difficult issue is. But it's kind of recognising for me that confrontation doesn't have to be confrontational. You know, you, you can say, and when I talk about confrontation, I'm not talking about kind of aggressive face-to-face -face confrontation. I'm talking about just saying no or that's not good enough. And, and developing that skill to be comfortable with it and giving those honest feedback to people and delivering those difficult messages to people honestly, that's how you get to trust. We're excited to welcome experienced hostage negotiator, Kevin Taylor, onto today's episode. Kevin graduated from the respected FBI hostage negotiation program and was the head of the Greater Manchester Hostage Negotiation Unit. He has since founded Crimson Peak, doing motivational talks, personal coaching sessions and delivering skill-based workshops and immersive training events. So listen, Kev, uh, the first question that we ask every single guest is to us. Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you? It's a good question. I, I, I suppose Goldust for me is that is is that rare thing, you know, is those rare things that, Enhance you, enhance your life, enhance your knowledge. Those things that you can't, that aren't just readily available. A bit like being from Northern England, like you, hen's teeth. You know, they're difficult to find, but when you find them, brilliant. Well, Kev, let's get straight into what it is you do. So you were a, a uniformed police officer. Uh, you worked your way up through the ranks to, to chief inspector. And then in the police, you became a hostage negotiator. Can you take us back to how it started and how you got to that point? Where it started, I suppose it depends how far we're going to go back, really. Uh, I suppose I should go back, really, to join, join the cops because whilst I worked through the ranks, I didn't kind of... Uh, I stood still for a long time. Uh, and I'm guessing, you know, you're familiar with the term imposter syndrome. Uh, I definitely had imposter syndrome. Uh, and the beauty of kind of being a negotiator and training to be a negotiator is you you really have to unpick yourself you have to understand yourself uh, and what motivates you what your fears are and part of that process for me was kind of recognizing what had happened to me on my journey if you like and uh i joined the cops in the mid 80s and it was a very different job than it is now a very different organization and it's Fair to say, I didn't have uh, I didn't have great qualifications at all. 
my dad had died when I was four years old. My mum brought three of us up on her own. And at 16, she said, go and get a job. And, you know, she'd struggled for years to to, uh, to run the house and, and run the family. My, I've got an older brother and a younger sister, and we all did the same when we got to 16. We, we went and got a job. So I didn't do college and university and what have you. And at 21, I decided I was going to join the police. Uh, I was a mechanic before I was in the cops, and I decided I was going to join the cops. And uh, went and did the application form, filled that in, got through that. Uh, back then, you did an initial interview with a local police officer, got through that, went for numerous literacy tests, did those, went for a an assessment weekend where you went and did team building activities and uh, kind of talking in front of groups of people, got through all that and went for a final interview. And it was the final interview really where, for me, the damage was done. And and it came in the form of, there was three people on the panel, Chief Inspector in the middle, uh, and two other uh, people in on the interview panel. And right towards the end of the interview, the guy in the middle said, why have you never furthered your education? And I said, well, I worked six days a week, which I did. Uh, at the time, I did quite a bit of martial arts. I sort of trained three, four times a week. Uh, and at the weekends, I got with my mates. And I remember the the two on the outside having a little smile and a chuckle to themselves at my response. But the guy in the middle took exception to it and absolutely destroyed me that I wasn't clever enough, that people like me shouldn't be in the job. If it was up to him, I wouldn't have got as far as I've got. I shouldn't be sat in front of him now. And it really just kind of went on and on. To the fact that it, you know, people get ahead of steam, he'd got himself going and he got to the point where he threw his pen on the counter, on the desk, should I say, and said, in fact, I don't know what to do with you. Get out and wait outside while I decide. And I got sent out and stood in a corridor. Uh, I don't think the interview like this anymore, to be fair. Uh, I got stood in a corridor, whatever, a couple of minutes, I don't really know. Got brought back in, sat back down, got destroyed again. Uh, not clever enough, shouldn't be here, da 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 da. And then right at the very end, he turned around and said, Well, I don't think you should be, but these two really like you and think I should give you a chance. So I will, but I'll be watching. And if you struggle in any way, then you'll be gone. Is that clear? And that was genuinely my welcome to the police. You've done a great job. And at the time, I didn't kind of realise the damage that that had done. Until two years, I've done my probationary period in the cops for two years. Then you sit down with sergeant who's the next rank up to have an appraisal. And the sergeant who was uh, my boss at the time said, do you know what, Kev? He says, take your exams. You know, switched online. You could go find this job. And I said, no, I'm OK. I want to carry on doing what I'm doing, learn the job. Da, 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 da. At the time, response policing, the model that's used in the UK, uh, response policing wasn't a thing. It was kind of, as a cop, you did kind of everything. And then uh, there was one, vi one van called the Zero One van, which was double crewed and went to kind of higher risk uh, incidents, if you like. And it was called the Zero One. So I said, I want to do the zero one following year. Do take your exams. I want to do the zero one following year. I've just started on zero one following year. Take your exams. I've just changed shift. And year after year after year, I put off going for promotion. I went on traffic as a traffic cop. Uh, and even there, take your exams. I'm going to do accident investigation. And the reality of it was, it was, it wasn't the, I wanted to do zero one. I wanted to change shift. I wanted to do traffic. It was, there's always a voice in my head going, remember, you won't pass your exams, you're not clever enough. 
and and it's that damage that the poor leadership I'm going to put it like that poor leadership does to people and I'm convinced that the guy there thought he was giving me a motivational speech uh, without recognising the damage that had actually done. And then when I was on traffic, I uh, I got involved in a pursuit with a stolen vehicle. Uh, 99% of the time when a stolen vehicle either crashes or they abandon it, they run off. Uh, and then you switch off, jump out. Traffic cops are usually good for about 50 metres. Then we need a police dog to take over. <laughs> <laughs> so as we pull up the doors open on this car and I switch off I've got a colleague with me who's come on traffic on an attachment come out with Lucky Kev to see what traffic officers do over night time and instead of running off the driver ran to the back of the car the boot was on its way up and he pulled out a military automatic shotgun uh, racked one into the chamber ran at the car door we're going nowhere because I've already switched off uh, opened the car door and quite literally gun into the side of the face. Uh, from there, got out the car, gun in the mouth. A much longer story, but from there, uh, it wasn't a great negotiation. It absolutely wasn't anything to do with negotiation. There was a realisation of death from my perspective that I, that I wasn't going to survive this, that it was going to go off by accident. Uh, but we ended up kind of the two of us, me and the other officer, face down on the floor, gun at the back of my head, being told I'm going to have my head blown off. The guy got distracted, was the top of my bit. The lad I was with had his radio and had slid it away uh, that had distracted the guy, and he ended up just in between the two of us. And that, for me, is the only thing that kind of saved us that night. But the reason I, I don't recommend it as a means of getting over imposter syndrome, uh, but for me, it was a catalyst event that changed kind of what I did. Uh, I took my exams, having been action planned by my wife to take uh, my promotion exams. Her rationale being, I'm at least one step away from the danger, if you like. Uh, and from there, moved into the city of Manchester. And from when I was in the city of Manchester, I got introduced to the negotiator team through one of my bosses, uh, had an interview with them, got invited onto the team. And from there, kind of really found my niche in, in the job, something I absolutely loved doing. And uh, I recognise that the skills I learned as a negotiator, I used as a leader. You know, they're the same skills, the, the ability to motivate people, the ability to bring people with you uh, and to get people to do things that they're a bit uncomfortable doing. Uh, and as a negotiator, that, that's what you do. You, you build relationships with people quickly and to the point where you can influence them, change their behaviour to do things that they may be a little bit uncomfortable doing. So for having made the rank of sergeant, I, I moved fairly quickly to inspect and run an intelligence unit for the city centre and then moved around different departments and eventually uh, was chief inspector for a while uh, before finishing. In a nutshell. <laughs> Sorry, that went on for a bit no, then, didn't it? <laughs> I look we could sit in and listen to those stories, to be honest, mate. I think the important part of it is it's the learning lessons that, I, I guess, the hidden school, where when you're sat in front of people for that first initial interview, Kev, you sat there and there's two people on the end, one, in the, one guy in the middle, and you can either sink or yeah. crack on and... 
you know, there may be a thank you in there for him because that's maybe spurring you on to, to become an hostage negotiator and a successful one at that. It's a when I, when you're finishing the cops, you kind of you, people have retirement due, and you give you expect to give a speech and things like that. And I did say genuinely on the speech, the one person I would like to buy a drink for was the guy with the shotgun, and everyone kind of went really. And I went well without that incident, I I am convinced I would have finished as a police constable on traffic and done the rest of my service, still having those doubts in my head uh, that had kind of been implanted in there. Uh, someone did point out at the do that he couldn't have come anyway because he was still in prison. So, uh, but <laughs> I say still back in prison. He'd not been in a long time. But <laughs> so, Luke, talking about offices negotiation, what is the starting point of every negotiation? I think the first thing is recognizing that none of them are the same. That it doesn't. It, you can't that there is that there is no cookbook approach to it nobody can kind of say if you do this 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 and this that's the result we'll get you know recognizing that every single one is different and what worked yesterday will not work today and may never work again you know it, it's having that flexibility but i think one of the important things for me is uh, i mentioned it before when we were just talking is that understanding yourself having a real deep and it, people often don't have uh, I, I'm still involved in the training of negotiators and, you know, part of that programme, the, the National Hostage Negotiators course, is finding people's triggers. What is it that pushes your buttons? Because if you don't understand that yourself, then we call it leaking, that, that you leak when you come across someone you don't like or someone who who uh, who pushes your emotional buttons. So that having a deep understanding of yourself is massively important uh, before you start any negotiation because my view is that as a negotiator as a hostage negotiator you can't find out what your triggers are when someone's life's at risk you've got to know what they are and no different when you take that out into sport into leadership into co you have to understand what are your values what are your beliefs what is it your motivates you what are your fears and have that real honest conversation with yourself and there's no right or wrong to it it's just being honest with yourself and i often when i when i'm working uh with different organizations is get people to do that exercise in the privacy of their own home and what i would say is never do it never do it with with your nearest and dearest sat with you because the only thing you'll ever write down is what you expect they're expecting you to write down so do it on your own and be bloody honest with yourself and, you know, and sometimes it's a bit uncomfortable. But if you don't, then when you come across the people you don't like, then your buttons get pressed, you leak, your tongue changes, everything about you. You, you you'll, you'll both know, uh, you know, that when you sit across the table from someone and you say something, it lands with them and it doesn't land well with them. The voice in your head kind of says, oh, they didn't like that. Because we recognise it straight away in people, and, you know, that's why you can't, you know, from my perspective as a negotiator, when I come across someone I don't like, and, you know, quite often you, you can do, I can't allow it to affect my delivery. I can't allow it to affect how I engage with them because that's often what they're looking for. So having that deep understanding of yourself is, I would say, is the first step. Understand who you are, what drives you, what your fears are, what your motivations are.
But when you're asked to go into to crisis negotiations, what process would you go through to get yourself into the right state of mind, knowing that you're going into something that could be quite challenging? I think the the the, the first thing is get the adrenaline under control, because you get a massive hit when you get that phone call in the middle of the night, or you get a you know. It's not always the middle of the night. You can be in the office and the phone rings. But when you get that phone call to say you're required to turn out, you uh, you know, as you said, David, you're going into a life at risk situation, and there's a huge amount of pressure on your on being responsible for that. So settle the adrenaline down first is is one of the things I would always take the brief and then get control of myself uh, and refreshing my head very quickly. Just run over the. The skills, and when I say refresh, one of the things <laughs> we in the negotiation when we talk about practice, 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 and, and make sure it's no good if you've not deployed for a month. When you get that phone call, start thinking, okay, so what were those skills that I was taught again? You've got to have it, and so you really are just kind of refreshing and convincing yourself, right? Okay, I'm good to go. Uh, but initially, it's that adrenaline dump for me, and and. We, I think it's great to feel nervous about it. Uh, and I often say to negotiators when we're starting, when they're starting on their journey, is the first time that you walk out to someone who's in crisis and you think, here we go again, it's time to give up because you're not on top of your game. That nervousness, that, that adrenaline hit sharpens you, sharpens you up. Is the adrenaline hit, you know, one of the core skills required for effective negotiations, Kev? You've mentioned about knowing self, and I guess that's one of the greatest challenges to be able to effectively how, how do you know you know yourself? It's very challenging at times because depending on what state we're in at any one given moment in time, yeah, maybe telling fibs. So the, when we look at crisis, crisis is uh, is based on truth. We we never lie during a negotiation. Uh, so, you know, it's based on telling the truth and sometimes those messages are, are difficult to, to deliver. And I don't think adrenaline is a requirement. I think adrenaline is a byproduct of of the stress that you, you know, that that the enormity of, of what it is you're going to go and do. You know, so when you look at the sporting world, the st stepping out onto a pitch of a, of a major game, if you're stepping out thinking, oh, God, here we go again. Well, you're not on top of your game. And it's no different, no different for us as as negotiators. That that adrenaline hit is because you understand the pressure. You understand the the importance of what you're doing. You're going out to save a life. Would it be a fair assumption that to get along with someone quickly, we have to to connect and build a relationship them with them quickly? And if that's the case, how do you do that? I'm just trying to process that that that, that question is it is it necessary? There's a difference between I suppose getting along with someone and the environment you're getting along with them. Is it a social getting along or is it a business kind of getting along? And uh, my job as a negotiator was to build rapport quickly, was to make a connection with someone as quickly as possible, uh, and to and to build a rapport. And the, the core skill that we that we teach and that we focus on developing as negotiator is listening. The, 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 
a lot of the time when we go into meetings and we go into situations uh, in the workplace, uh, whatever your workplace may be, we often go in based on our agenda, what it is that we want to hear, what it is that, that, that we want to achieve. Um, by doing that, we don't listen to the person on the other side. So to build that rapport quickly and to make that engagement, we have to listen to them. Uh, and that is absolutely the skill that, that negotiators develop is that skill of of listening. So when you when we're actually in dialogue with someone, what, what are you actually listening to and watching out for that gives gives clues about which direction to take the, the conversation? So one of the assessments that, that I look at is is how long the engagement the the length of their responses is probably the the better way of, of terming it. So if if I first turn out to somebody, the chances are initially those responses are going to be very short. A, a marker for me is if those responses become longer, then I know I've got them engaged and I know that they're that they're engaged and talking to me. Conversely, you've also got to be aware of when they've started short, they've that they've become quite lengthy conversations that you're having and then they start to drop back off again uh, it, it's that kind of non-engagement engagement back to disengaging and and kind of registering those things as you go along the but we're also looking for energy the energy with which somebody speaks the, the tone the pace you know when things are important to somebody they speak quickly their pace picks up and their energy picks up and it's recognizing those changes in people's language uh and again not just in my world in 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 any environment when when you're in business or when you're coaching people you can tell the energy level the interest for them so we're looking for the things that are interesting for them and when they when they drop off when, when their tone drops and and their their whole kind of demeanor starts to to drop down that disengagement so you're constantly, you know, one thing to remember, which I get is different for, for a lot of people in, in business, is uh, we don't work alone. You know, you may be on your own for, for a period of time while your your coach, your support is going uh, to do something else, to get some advice or uh, give updates and things like that. But we work, we don't work alone because, the, you know, the, the, we all naturally tune things in and out. And so rather than two pairs of ears, we've got at least four pairs of ears. You know, you know, we're we're there to focus on on what it is that the people are saying to us because it's important. Well, for you, Kev, you're obviously very skilled at what you do in terms of negotiating with people, but how do you negotiate with someone who is a good negotiator? <laughs> so it, I would say on on that front, don't negotiate. Uh it should be much easier because you both know what you're trying to achieve. Uh, so if you're working out with someone who's a good negotiator, then then the pattern around it should be far easier to uh, to engage with them. So are there different levels of listening? I know you've referred to that one of the greatest skills to actually get information is to listen. But are there different levels of that, Kev? Oh, there's different levels as opposed. I often talk about level one and level two, but the, uh, that, that level one is kind of more around communication as opposed to listening. Listening becomes a different level when you engage and focus. 
and that and that's the difference is the is the energy you're putting in to focusing on the other person. So yeah, a lot of the time it's a term that's banded around a lot is that often the times where people listen to respond as opposed to listen to understand. And I think that's an important distinction is that a lot of the time when somebody's talking at you, you're already formulating your response. So now you're not listening to them, you're formulating your response. And it's it's having that discipline to uh, not run away with yourself and listen to what it is they're saying, how they're saying it. And that is where, when you look at level two as a communication level, is if you think of yourself as socially, when you're out with friends, uh, wherever you are, at a party, at, a, at some kind of gathering, you may well think about the you may well think about the topic that you're going to open the conversation with but once that conversation starts to flow you don't really have to think about the words you're choosing your brain chooses them for you so i would term that as kind of level one social interaction with people when you step that up to refer to as kind of conscious excellence that picking it yourself up you're listening to what they've said. And one of the things I say to, to negotiators is, what have they said? What does it really mean? How can I use that? So you're now really tuning into what have they said? What's the hidden meaning behind it, if any? How can I use that information to move the negotiation forward? You know, my job, we're not there to have a chat. It's a conversation with a purpose. We are there to move it along and get somebody back to safety uh, as quickly and as safely as possible. So that taking it up to that next level, and I, I suppose the place that most people would re- would kind of that would resonate with is if you're going for an interview for a job you know if you're going for an interview with a for a job when you walk in and sit down and the first time first question that gets asked for you you immediately switch on what has the person just asked me how can i respond and how can i respond in a way that i tell them the things i think they want to hear and and when you've come out of those whatever it is 45 minutes an hour interview I guarantee most people will come out and go, I'm exhausted because it's hard work operating at that level. You know, I would regularly, we would get picked up for a crisis negotiation in a, in a traffic vehicle and blue lighted to, uh, to the scene and then taken back. And on the way back, I often fall asleep because you're exhausted. So there is those different levels, but it's using it consciously and recognising that you're focused on the on what the person's saying, how they're saying it, what's the hidden meaning behind it, if anything, and how can I use that information to progress it forward? I have no doubt you've dealt with numerous different situations and, and different types of people. When somebody is aggressive, yeah. they're constantly shouting abuse, what strategies do you deploy to calm the situation? So uh, it's a great term and it's you, everyone uses it a lot. I would say the first thing is, is when we talk about calming people down is that never in the history of calming down has anyone calmed down having been told to calm down. They always go the other way. So calming down is one of the things that straight away is out of our vocabulary. It's... Uh, it will get you, we call it getting burnt, you get burnt horrendously for, for the calm down comment. Uh, but to settle a, a situation down, we 
we allow people to vent. And what I mean by venting is when, when they're aggressive, when they're verbal, not physically aggressive, that's completely different, but when they're verbally aggressive, we, we will let them go uh, and let them vent. And what's important when people are venting, what we can try and do is exactly what you said there, David, is we, we can often try and settle it down straight away and solve the problem for them. But until we've dealt with their emotions, we we can't deal with the problem that they've got. So by allowing them to vent, said before about the, the level one and level two, and we're not really controlling what, what we're talking about when we're at level one or the words that we choose, should I say. When we're emotional, we don't control what comes out of our mouth. I know I have, and I know you two guys will have done, been in an argument with someone you care very much about, and as the words have left your mouth, your brain catches up and you think, oh, God, I didn't want to say that. Too late, it's out there. So that's the purpose of allowing people to vent. When, when they're angry, they'll tell you things of how they see the world. And at that moment in time, it is irrelevant whether they're right or wrong. The most important thing is you're understanding how they see the situation. Uh, and you can help them deal with their emotions, help them recognise it within themselves. And there's also, there was uh, the stages of excitation, which was uh, a model developed by a guy called Walter Hertzberg from the FBI. Uh, and and kind of what the model shows is that when people are high energy and, and highly emotive, over a period of time, that's physically exhausting to be that energetic so over time, they drop naturally drop back down. So the allowing people to vent gets it lit quite literally off their chest. And as they start to drop down, then they move more back towards rational thinking, whatever rational thinking might look like. But that they that energy drops off, and you can then engage with them. So sometimes it is a matter of allowing people to go, and not jump in and try and settle them down, because a lot of the time, if you do that without addressing their emotion. Even if you come up with the right solution, well, they'll throw it back in your face anyway, because they're not ready to hear it. Does that mean if that makes sense? You've got to allow people to go to get it off. And then, you know, what we say is let them vent and bloody listen hard. Listen hard while they are, because that's exactly how they see the world, how they see the situation. And they give you a lot of the time all the things that you need to work with them to move it forward. No different in any environment. That's just not that's not relevant to uh, to crisis negotiation. That's relevant for any kind of conflict area. Just having that confidence to let people get it off the chest. Some people can go for a long time. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so not not breaking the state. Uh, were you changing what they are thinking about? You're just allowing them to let them go. So you're not you're not going to interrupt them, or it's just yeah, let them verbalize how they're feeling, and the you know, and you can you can help by telling them what you think you're seeing. You know, it seems to me you're really angry. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. So now I know that I'm not dealing with anger. I'm dealing with frustration, and that's what I mean about letting them go and letting them letting that energy drop off. <laughs> the analogy I kind of always use is for anyone who's got kids you'll know you can only shout at them for too long before it gets exhausted and you go, right, you're grounded, get to your room, you know, because it exhausts you. And it's you flip that the other way, you're letting people go. And and like I say, 
doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. You, you can listen to them and think, well, you've got that completely wrong. It doesn't matter at that moment in time. Because if you try and correct them, it's just going to escalate. So let them go and then you can come back in and and uh, once you've dealt with those emotions. You go to a crisis situation. What would be perceived to be a crisis situation, you turn up. Have there only been any times where you've actually effectively not needed to negotiate? God, yeah. Anything needed to be done. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I remember I deployed out to one guy who was in a uh, dangerous position uh, and early hours of the morning, literally, no one was speaking to him. Uh, I, I got there, flat roof, managed to get onto the roof and literally said, why don't you step? Part of that settling the adrenaline down, as we, we talked about before, is I had a a response that I that I would use and vary depending on the situation I was in, but it was a response I knew I could deliver confidently under pressure. Because because what happens is on the way to an incident, you can work through in your head how you're going to open, what your opening is going to be, what your introduction is going to be, and it sounds brilliant inside your own head. But then when you walk out and you see where they are and the adrenaline hits you and your vocal cords tighten up because you're nervous and your voice comes out squeaky and your brilliant line comes out all over the place. It's not very convincing for the person that, that's in crisis. So, so I had a, a line that I would use that I knew I could deliver confidently. And, you know, when you, my part of that introduction for me was, why don't you step down and move on and talk about it over here? And I said that to this guy who went, oh, right, okay. And came down and, you know, when we, when we, talked it through and I said you know why you come down he said well I just thought yeah I should stay here as no one was talking to me right great the, the, the from that point on one of the first questions I always asked when I got a call was has anyone asked them to come down yet and you would be surprised how many times you got a phone call to say thanks if you can cancel you know and that isn't demeaning anybody that's in crisis sometimes it just needs that person to say why don't you come and talk about it over here and and I think it, for me, it's a huge lesson around don't negotiate if you don't have to. And, and that's just not just my world, your world as well. A lot of the time we put ourselves in a negotiation because we think we're in one. Because we go with a mindset of this is going to be a difficult conversation. This is going to be challenging. So we put ourselves in that situation. We listen for it. We listen for that disagreement. When we listen for it, we hear it. So now we've just entered into a negotiation that we didn't need to be in. So for me, there is absolutely that need to go with an open mind and, and not not go there full of assumptions. That was the final word. I was going to ask you that, to be honest. So we go in there with an assumption. That yeah. can be quite dangerous. It can be... It can take us off on a different journey, a journey where we ordinarily didn't really need to to be in. Absolutely. And, and I think the other side of it as, as well, Keith, from that is, particularly in, in work environments, is, I mean, I kind of like into taking over a team and, you know, over the years in the cops have, have, have moved into different teams and you always kind of get a brief around the team that you're going into. And what you get is, right, you need to watch Keith. He's a bit of a nightmare. David's a good lad, do everything. And you get this brief of who the individuals are. Well, all you're getting is the other person's values and beliefs and their relationship that they had with those individuals. 
Uh, and sometimes we can go in uh, and it sets, as you say, it sets our assumptions, sets our mindset that, so my initial interaction with you is different than it would be if I went in open-minded. Uh, and you know, I think there is a huge danger with with that. And, you know, particularly in my, in, in my world of, of going in with assumptions because it can lead you down a path that you that you really didn't want to go. And, you know, really all, all I wanted to know was in a crisis situation was what's the name if we know it? Have they said anything? Have they asked for anything? Anything else is other people's viewpoint on what's going on, what the situation is, and that can be dangerous. What strategies do you have in, in your toolbox that will help our listeners influence the, whether it's players, colleagues, uh, or peer group with integrity and get those people on board quickly? Listen to them, treat them as individuals and recognise that everybody needs something different. It's like, like the guy I mentioned before who came down straight away. That line that I would use that ended with, why don't you come down and talk about it, had never worked before that day and it never worked again afterwards. But for that one individual, that, 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 was, that was what they needed. But a lot of the time particularly from a leadership perspective, we deal with everyone as a collective, as a team. But they're not, they're all individuals and they will all need something different. And a lot of the time it's my way or the highway. Well, if you've approached it in a wrong way for someone who needs something different, it'll be the highway. You know, to motivate people, you need to understand them as an individual and what they individually need. And a lot of the time we treat everyone as a collective. And and that is hard work to, to understand everybody. You know, uh, a lot of the time people get promoted because they're good at what they do as a day job and then they become responsible for people being responsible for people and being a leader is a completely different skill set than, than what your day job is uh, and it, it's kind of recognizing that leadership uh, and working in teams is hard work and takes effort uh, and that ability to understand people to understand what the, each individual's motivations are and adjust your communication style to what they need is is what engages people very quickly. People want to be seen as individuals and treated as individuals and respected and valued. And if you do that with people, you get them on board very quickly. So, so when someone says, hey, listen, trust me, trust me on this, how do you gain trust with someone who doesn't even know you? Yeah. Uh, do you know what, Keith? And I think it, it's a line that's overused. You need to trust me on this. Nobody needs to trust anybody. Trust has to be earned. Absolutely it does. You can't tell somebody that they need to trust you. It, it's got, it comes from, it comes from that relationship and their willingness to trust you. And, and to do that, you can ask people to trust you. You can't tell people they need to trust you, but trust works on different levels. Trust works on, do they trust you as an individual? And are you individually capable of doing what you've said you can do? And when you look at it from an organisational perspective, what's the reputation of the organisation? Is that trusted? And when you look at the cops, a lot of the time, particularly when you're dealing with sieges and things like that, no, they didn't like the cops and didn't trust the cops. So when you've got that situation, I'm not going to use organisational trust. I'm going to look at, them getting to trust me as an individual. And a lot of the time you'll get people saying, oh, you're okay, you. 
well, I can live with that because I'm building up towards that trust. What I would say with trust is that it's a constant. When trust is gone, it's gone. You know, rapport, there's no issues with it being up and down. You, you When you're testing and building that relationship, you can test it with something that doesn't work and you, you kind of uh, drop down a few levels. But you can always recover that. When you breach someone's trust, then that's very difficult, if not impossible, to recover for people. And, and that's where a lot of the time, and sometimes we talk about kind of, well, you know, it's just a, a white lie. Well, the clue's in the title, it's a lie. You know, if if you get caught in a lie, then you, the trust is gone. And that's where relationships start to, start to erode. People would, my experience, personal experiences, people would much rather be given a difficult message truthfully than lie to to make it softer for them and then they find out later on that actually you didn't tell them the truth. Uh, and that is people being, I suppose it's one of the challenges that uh, whether it be in sport, whether it be in business or, or, or my world, one of the challenges is being comfortable with confrontation. And a lot of the time people aren't comfortable with confrontation. So we avoid it. And we avoid it by either telling a white lie or we avoid dealing with this with, with whatever the difficult issue is. Uh but it's kind of recognizing for me that confrontation doesn't have to be confrontational. You know, you, you can say, and when I talk about confrontation, I'm not talking about kind of aggressive face-to-face confrontation. I'm talking about just saying no or that's not good enough. And and developing that skill to be comfortable with it. And giving those honest feedback to people and delivering those difficult messages to people honestly, that's how you get to trust. Uh, you know, and sometimes you 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 have got to flex your style to what the individual needs. What lets you know during negotiations then that things are not working, that it's not going right? That's a that's a great question, that David, and it's uh, it's something we can become blind to. Uh, as I said, we don't work. We don't work alone uh, as negotiators. And when you're in the moment, you can become blind to how successful you're being. And and we have a a, a team leader or a coordinator that sits outside that would look in to be gauging whether things are working and if they're not rotating team members and uh, and having that external view. Constantly assessing for me is the level of engagement, as I, as I said before. Uh, if they're, if those responses have now dropped off and they're no longer speaking to me, then I'm struggling to engage with that with that with that person. Self awareness again. Sometimes you have to recognise that you're not the right person for the job. That, that I'm not the right person to engage with, and I need somebody else in. Uh, and you know, sometimes we we are blind to that because we're focused on achieving what we want to achieve when all we're doing is banging our head against the wall. Uh, having that step back and understand or an external voice to tell you that we need to rotate, this isn't working. Uh, I think about, you know, I remember dealing with a siege with, with a young guy who was in an address and uh, I was the coordinator, so listening in and the negotiators were doing a great job, but nothing was working it wasn't progressing forward and they'd been at it for a couple of hours and we were getting absolutely nowhere. And at that point, my conversation with the incident commander is you need to start looking at your tactical plans. 
because we haven't got it. We haven't got any engagement. Uh, and it's having that understanding that it doesn't always work, that sometimes some relationships won't work for whatever reason uh, and, and being willing to step away from it. So on occasions, I would imagine if you're after buying something for yourself, uh, it'd be an interesting conversation to convince yourself that you, that you need to buy something. Huh? How do you yeah. negotiate with yourself? I do. I do. Yeah. I do enjoy buying a car. I've got to say, uh, I like that that engagement with the with the sales people. But yeah, negotiating with yourself—that's a good one. Uh, I always win. <laughs> so I suppose it depends on which side you're looking at it. Half of me wins, half of me loses. But ten that I've been married for thirty years, so I don't know whether that makes me a good negotiator or my wife a better negotiator. I'm still working that one out at the moment. So, Kev, in terms of conclusions of of a hostage crisis, so you get your job done, you do what's needed. What's the process afterwards for you and your team? First thing we do, we do a a hot debrief straight after straight after the incident, and I really believe it's one of the strengths of what we do as a team, we debrief no matter the result. So positive, negative, doesn't matter. It gets debriefed completely. Because there's a lot of the time, and I've noticed this as I've, as I've kind of uh, come out of the, the law enforcement world and into into the, the corporate world, is that uh, if something goes wrong, if we lose a client or whatever, then it gets poured over forensically. And that there's often an appetite of someone's head must roll, and what that you know that that breed of there's no room for error isn't conducive to people developing themselves. People make mistakes, absolutely make mistakes. Sometimes things don't work for whatever reason, but when things go right, it's a pat on the back, crack on next job, and oftentimes we never debrief when it goes well when something's gone well. And look at why did it go well? What was the team make up? What was the was it something we said? Was it something we'd said earlier? Was it absolutely nothing to do with us? And having that understanding of self-development of when things go well is what negotiator teams throughout the world do really well. It is debrief constantly. Why did it work? What had we done? What was the team make up? What was the tipping point for it? What was the makeup of the team? Was it something we'd said? Was it something we'd planted earlier and it's just developed? And having that real initial brief afterwards and then a more structured one later on. The the difficulty is, is when you... I've lost a couple of people when I've been negotiating. I lost somebody in a kidnap and somebody uh, during a crisis intervention. And debriefing that and coming to terms with that is is part of the is part of that journey of uh understanding yourself understanding what you did we record everything every every conversation we have and pouring back over those and looking at where you could have improved uh what went well uh, what worked what didn't work is is a huge part of what we do as negotiators but we deal with life and death and and having you know we're supported by uh Councillors and welfare teams. Uh, when we have, if we have an incident that uh, doesn't work out, but we also have a very, it's a very close community. 
uh, of peer debriefs and things like that. And you have to, when you work in a stressful environment, no matter what it is, forget being being in my world, no matter what, you have to have your outs. You have to have your your ability to to debrief yourself, to vent, to get it out there. I after the shotgun uh, after the shotgun incident, I uh, had welfare support came round and at the time I, I was when I joined the cops you, you saw welfare support if you had a drink problem you were getting divorced or a gambling problem uh, other than that you never went uh, and I was very much in that mindset of I'm not going to welfare uh, and fortunately for me my boss at the time said yes you are it's an order and uh and I thank them for that because the welfare was absolutely superb. And, you know, and in the cops now, that mentality has changed completely. And everyone kind of recognises the, the benefit of having that external support. But the, the guy who came to see me really kind of nailed it for, for me personally because he knew I was reticent about seeing them. And, he's, and he's, the way he explained it was if you think of your brain as being a sponge, he said the first murder you go to, there's a drip drops in your sponge, the first serious assault, the first rape, the first traffic collision, the, the, the you know, the first robbery, it's drip, 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 drip. And over a period of years, your sponge gets full. And he said, just like a sponge, you need one more drop and it starts to leak. And as soon as it starts to leak, it won't stop until it's been squoze he said i'm here to squeeze your sponge so you can take more shit and and it really kind of landed with me that you have to be able to empty your head no matter what environment you're in you, you, when you work in a stressful environment you have to be able to offload it you know and for me say married 30 years my wife's fantastic at being my sounding board of being able to get things off and chat things through i like to cook i like to read uh, we do a lot of walking. It's finding whatever you're out is to be able to switch off. I think it was Ruby Wax that said the human brain, the human brain is is not a computer. It doesn't need charging up. It needs switching off. And I think it's a great analogy. You need to be able to decompress and 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 switch off whatever your switch off looks like. That decompression, that, if you like, the squeezing of the sponge, Having a great network and resource around you in terms of feedback mechanism, Kev, yeah. align not just to yourself here, but anyone else in business, the line of work you're doing, I would think that would be uh, pivotal for any success, wherever success looks like or whatever it means. I, I, I believe so, Keith. I really do. I, I think that having that external view is, is hugely important because, as I said, you know, we're – I think back to the to the siege that I mentioned. They were focused on get the guy out, get the guy out, get the guy out, and you're missing the other things that that, that are going on. And having that external voice to be able to say, did you consider this? What about that? Or just there to just listen. And you know, a lot of the time, people when you talk to them will try and give you solutions, and often you just need someone to listen and let you offload it. And a lot, Sam, you'll unpack it yourself when, when you do that. When you retired from the police, Kev, you set up the consultancy firm Crimson Peak. Can yeah. you share with us what the company does? Yeah, so I do. Uh, 
personal coaching, we do some quite immersive. I work with a team of guys that were all hostage negotiators. Uh, we, we do training around leadership and uh, obviously negotiation. Kind of, it's more around. I don't like to think of it as negotiation because it's 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 not negotiate. It's about building relationships, making people better at doing what they do, uh, and uh, work across lots of different sectors now. Uh, from obviously elite sports, which is how I got introduced to you guys, uh, but right across different sectors in in the corporate world. Uh, it's just sharing that knowledge more, more than anything. I, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy seeing that light bulb moment when you point something out and goes, "Oh shit, I do that." Uh, of you know, of, uh, of just sharing that. But it's been an enjoyable journey, definitely. Kev, listen, it'd be it's been really, really interesting to have you with us. We thank you. Uh, I thank you on behalf of David and myself, and I'm sure the listeners will, will glean so much information from, from if you like, the goldest information that you've shared with us. So thank you ever so much. Again, we'll make sure that we we post how people can contact you if needs be. Thanks ever so much. Thanks, guys. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Dot com. Thank you, everybody.